a new poll from NBC News and Telemundo finds that Democrats' advantage with Latino voters has declined since previous election cycles. Over half of Latino voters say they want Democrats to control Congress after the 2024 elections versus 33 percent who want Republicans in charge. Democrats' 21-point Democratic lead in congressional preference is actually down from past NBC Telemundo polls of Latino voters, including a whopping 21 points since October 2012. Joining me now to weigh in is staff writer at The Hill, Rafael Bernal. Rafael, so great to see you. Hey, it's great to be on. So I think that difference from 2012 to now is so important as we talk about, you know, the shifting Latino vote, because if you flash back to 2012, you know, that's the, the height of the Obama years, a time where Democrats and Democratic strategists were very confident that due to demographic change and immigration, they were headed toward, the Democratic Party was headed toward some kind of permanent majority because of that strategy. Now we're 10 years later, and that looks shakier than ever. And I, I wonder what you think is, is the big reason for that change. Well, if you, if you remove all nuance, which as a warning, you should not ever do, but the big reason, if you do remove all nuance, you had in 2012 a U.S. president who was promising big changes on immigration, despite, yes, being the deporter-in-chief. You had Democrats on one side on immigration, Republicans on the other side. On top of that, let's start adding some layers of nuance. You had an economic uh, economic policy where Democrats were known as the party of the working class. Uh, still, a very large segment of Latino voters were and are working class. You you did you had um, sort of the these these startups of of what eventually became Donald Trump's immigration policy that at the time sounded really racist, maybe. Maybe they, some argue they should still sound racist today, but they don't. They're very mainstream today. And, and you had, and crucially, you had fewer Latinos voting. Right back then and up until 2018, when that sort of changed, the big question among Latino politics and, and Latino uh, campaign um, consultants was how do we get people out to the polls? People are not participating. People are not registering, crucially. That has somewhat changed and, and in, in both directions. More people want to register, but also many states have made it harder for people to register. So people who aren't participating are sort of completely edged out of the electoral landscape. Hmm. I think there are a lot of presumptions made about Latino voters, uh, presumptions the Democratic Party has made, or maybe not even, it, it might not actually even be fair to say the Democratic Party, but some of the thought leaders who get, who become representative of it in, in elite institutions of higher education, on social media, et cetera, you know, the kind of pundits, and you see this on, uh, on, other, on other news channels, cable news channels um, that are progressive or mainstream. I have seen, for instance, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, the 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 uh, gender neutral uh, uh, sort of language applied to Latino voters, the the Latin X sort of thing. You know, it's is that a huge issue motivating a ton of voters? I suspect not. But I think it might may be indicative of a kind of uh, uh, misunderstanding of 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 what the cultural priorities or, or how far left your average Latino voter might be. I don't think it is nearly as far as uh, as, as people who are speaking. 
to their issues or get or, or purport to represent them on TV, and that maybe that disconnect has negatively affected Democratic outreach to the community. There's a lot of um, caricature, caricature of cultural competency, I would say. You're, you're right that, you know, uh, I, I saw a video yesterday where um, where a guy was dressed in, in you know, a big sombrero and a, and, a, and a shawl and all that and asked a bunch of people at a, at a college campus whether that was offensive. They all said yes and then went to a Latino neighborhood and asked whether it, whether it was offensive. And most people kind of just laughed at him and went, no, not really. <laughs> So there's a yeah, lot of it's a that. great example, <laughs> and it's it's a lot of misunderstanding how many Latinos, especially recent arrivals, because let's remember that second or third generation will have a lot more of the um, will will see this in the same through the same lens as a majority of Americans, and might actually say like, yeah, that's that's culturally incompetent. You're you're appropriating. That's bad. But the, the more recent arrivals. It's more about it's more about jobs, and you see it you see it in in every in every poll. Like the economy has consistently been number one, with with Latinos number two and number three are always healthcare and education. The environment is up there. And one warning, everybody, most of these pundits you're talking about, left and right, they love to say, "See, immigration is no longer an issue for Latinos. Latinos don't care about immigration. It's number five or less." I think what one part of what they're missing is that Latinos have proven and, and really proven to be very strong issues voters. And as, as issues voters, they know immigration reform is not in, in the cards. So I don't think a Latino voter who's even relatively well-informed is going to say immigration is their number one priority because they're voting for things that they can get. They can get a candidate who represents them better on the economy. They can get a, a candidate who prioritizes education or healthcare. They are very unlikely to get a candidate who will you know, untie the knot mm -hmm. on immigration reform. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. what the Republican Party is maybe doing. Is there awareness, enough awareness in the party that, hey, we, if we do outreach to these voters, we're doing better with them by default. Maybe we should concentrate more of our efforts here. We could be even more successful with them. Yeah, talk about how you know, the Biden economy is affecting Latino voters, maybe making them harder to get jobs, maybe the food, uh, price of food and gas, et cetera, is you know, outside the bound. Talk about those things specifically to Latino communities, are Republicans doing that, or are they still in the kind of previous mindset of, you know, we 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 have law, we don't have immigrant voters, minority voters, they don't support us, so we're not going to speak to them, and we would actually try to keep as many of them out of the country as we possibly could because they're not our voters. A, a, a thinking that is so outdated and so wrong, but is that sinking in with the Republican Party? So Republicans are doing a couple things really, really well. The, the first one is, is they noticed that Democrats are doing a bad job at reaching out to the voters that, that they should have an easy, easy time convincing of voting for Democrats. Basically, why were Latinos not voting when Latinos were overwhelmingly Democratic? They still are overwhelmingly Democratic, but even more so. They weren't voting because nobody was reaching out to them. Mm. Campaigns weren't spending a cent on them. And Republicans... You know, it, it took them a couple decades to realize this, but now that they've realized it, they're putting real money and real investment where Democrats haven't historically, where Democrats have, you know, taken Latinos for granted. It sounds like a platitude, but it's kind of true. Um, 
So they're doing that very well, and then they're they're moving moving issues toward them. But it's, I, I think it's an exaggeration when they say that you know the old the old Reagan phrase that Hispanics are are uh, Republicans they just or conservatives they just don't know it yet. Uh, that that's probably an exaggeration for a majority of Latinos. It might be true for some, especially especially evangelical Latinos. But they're they're making. Mm-hmm. They're sort of molding issues. They're molding. So immigration and the border are no longer about let's keep them out. It's about look at this chaos. Let's make our communities safer. Um, that's that's a very good spin. It, I mean, the, it's lost on few people who are paying attention that Republicans are still calling for building a wall, which basically says everything on that side of the wall is rotten not the best message to send to somebody who just came over from Mexico, but maybe, yeah, maybe somebody who doesn't want to, who really fled Mexico, doesn't want to know about their home country anymore. Maybe that is a good message. And they're really chipping away at the sides and uh, Republicans are very keenly aware of one more thing that's crucially important. They don't need to get to 40 or 45% with Latinos and they most likely will not because for, well, for a variety of reasons we've discussed. But if they get to a consistent 35, then they've chipped away at, at, that, at the advantage that Democrats have, especially in key races in places like Georgia and places like Arizona. And even, you don't think about it much with Latinos, but they're very important in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm. Well, the trajectory is so favorable for Republicans. And I think if they keep talking to Latinos or to do more of it, um, on issues like, yeah, the economy and crime, probably another big one, um, they would make just tremendous strides there. And like you said, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to win them all. You don't have to win the majority. But doing, just doing a lot better than they were doing could really totally change um, the electoral map for midterms, for the next election cycle, et cetera. Uh, Rafael Bernal, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be on. And we'll have more Rising right after this. We have brand new polling numbers for you today. A recent News Nation and Decision Desk HQ poll found that nearly 54% of voters disapprove of Joe Biden's handling of his role as president. Meanwhile, 60% of Republican voters think Trump should be the party's presidential nominee, while 84% of Dems do not want his name on the ballot at all. The poll also found that more than 47% of voters feel financially worse off than they were last year. Advisor at Decision Desk HQ, Scott Tranter, joins now to weigh in on these findings. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I, I see these numbers, and I think it's confirming a lot of, you know, what we already have a general sense of, that people are frustrated with the direction of the country, the economy in particular, and many Republicans still want Donald Trump, whereas for Democrats, that would be like a fate worse than death. Um, what, what other, you know, themes emerge from this kind of poll, polling? Well, I think the theme here is consistency. Since the News Nation has been tracking this since uh, February of this year, um, inflation, economy, gas prices, and as you see with this most recent one, 47% of Americans think that they're, um, they're worse off financially. That seems to be the underlying consistent theme going back six, eight months. And we've had a lot of other things we've been pulling on, but that has been, these economic issues have been consistent, and now we're 30 days out from the election. And so I think that's going to be the biggest one motivating voters going into the fall. Not the only issue, but the biggest issue. 
I want to get your sense of where things are headed, given the fluctuations we've seen. You know, obviously, for, for many months, the story was expecting a very favorable climate for Republicans, uh, you know, retaking um, uh, the Senate, perhaps, uh, the House, almost certainly. Then you had the Dobbs decision. Maybe the economy approved somewhat. And I think the weaknesses of specific Republican candidates um, very recently in Georgia and then other places as well became more evident. And the, the situation got much brighter for Democrats. Is that holding true? Because now I've seen some polling suggest that it, it, the Republicans might have a better night now than they're expected to have. It goes so back and forth. And what are we supposed to do but prognosticate and you know wait until the night of? But where is your sense of things now? Yeah. So, no, if you would have asked all the, the quote unquote experts six months ago, they would have they would have predicted a Republican House and a Republican Senate. Here we are less than 30 days or roughly 30 days out. And, you know, Decision Desk HQ projects about a 75, 76 percent chance the Republicans take the House, but about a 65 percent chance the Democrats keep the Senate. Hmm. That would be historically unpre- unprecedented in, a, in, in many cycles. And sure, it's happened before, but not any time recently hmm. where, um, where this has happened after a, a brand new president has been elected, where that, the House, is, House and Senate is split like that. So I think these things are, um, how do I put it? It's surprising now, and as you pointed out, the, the polling has looked better for Republicans, but voting has already started in places like North Carolina. It's about to start in Georgia and Florida, and the polling needs to get a little bit better in those places for the Republicans to actually come back and, and look favored in the Senate. Um, this is a long way to say there's still a lot of voting to come. There's still a lot of voting to happen, and there's some more polling to happen, but we are getting down to the wire for some of these things to turn around. Well, there are some more findings on key issues from that poll that I wanted to quickly get your reaction to. Roughly 65 percent of voters very concerned about inflation. Sixty five percent see it as a bigger problem facing the U.S. actually even than unemployment, covid or crime, which really does put in perspective that, you know, it's the economy stupid. Right. That's that's the old the old thinking the going back to the Clinton era. And it's borne out uh, once again. Right. Yep. No, no, no. And that's been consistent. As long as News Nation's been tracking this um, pretty much all year and inflation has been over 50 percent, which is relatively hard to get on issues and s- certainly consistently. And if it makes sense, look, when gas prices go up the way they are, when hotel prices are up the way they are, when, you know, cars and homes and all those types of things that affects people every day, um, certainly more than 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 some other issues. And these things haven't changed. And they look to their government. They look to their local officials. They look to the president. If the president stands, stands up and says, I'm going to pass an Inflation Reduction Act, they look at him and say, OK, well, he's doing something. But am I seeing it at the gas pump? And so, you know, these types of things are, are top of mind. And and um, my guess is they're probably going to uh, be a be a topic in 2024 cycle as well. I mean, these these issues are pretty salient. And And these people feel pretty strongly about it, both in the polling we see as well as the focus groups. Well, the poll also found that about 35 percent think U.S. policies that incentivize illegal immigration over illegal entry, over over legal entry, rather, are the most responsible uh, factors causing an increase in illegal immigration. And 26 percent believed that building a wall along the U.S. southern border would help the most to deter illegal immigration to the U.S. if it were put in place, which is not also not surprising you know, that Donald Trump really catapulted himself to the front of the pack in 2016 by by standing out on the wall issue. That was I, I know there are conservative pundits like Ann Coulter and other people got behind Trump 
uh, because he was the one strongest on that very pivotal issue that resonated then with, you know, with a very conservative base. So are, are we seeing that, again, that a Republican figure would certainly distinguish themselves by concentrating specifically on the wall, which is a, you know, it's an easy proposal. So one sentence proposal, we should build a wall on the southern border. It doesn't get into, you know, the more confusing or complicated aspects of our migration policy or our asylum policy or people overstaying their visas. Nope, just build a wall. It's not high enough. Build it a little higher. Um, that's, uh, that's what Republicans should run on, I, I would take from looking at that poll. What say you? Yeah, no, it's it's an easy message to sell, you know, build that wall. And I think that 26%, it's probably a little bit lower than had we, we done it a couple of years ago. I should have looked at the polling ahead of time. But, um, you know, that's pretty solid. 25, 30% of the, of the electorate, that's a pretty easy issue to go on. And I would imagine if we dug a little bit deeper and we asked those people, the 35% who said, okay, de-incentivize, it's not a build a wall and don't do the other. It's okay. Well, let's let's do some do some of the poly stuff, but also build a wall, right? And so I I think the 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 wall issue is that's why you see Republicans, especially in some southern states or in some relatively um, competitive primaries on in border states and things like that, say it because there is a solid twenty five mm -hmm. to thirty percent of the um, the electorate who is going to um, donate on that. They're going to be activists on that and they're going to vote on that. Do we have polling to indicate what the what the modern what, what the with the democratic uh, consensus position is on doing something about immigration because you hear so much in the media from people who are probably much further to the left in, in the Democratic coalition on immigration. I suspect than your actual Democratic voters. Do we know where their sentiments lie on this issue? Yeah, when you know, there's some good public polling out by Pew and Gallup. You know, the Democrats overwhelmingly, and it all depends on how you ask the question. Between 60 and 70 percent think the immigration issue should be solved. And 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 to be honest, if you ask Republicans and Democrats, more than 50 percent of them think it should be solved. Where they disagree is how it should be solved. Right? It goes back to the 2008 uh, attempt where it was path to citizenship. Is we're going to build a wall, we'll give them a path to citizenship that didn't exactly pass, but that that had slight bipartisan support. Um, but the reason why it was only slight is because people were like, well, let's build a wall first and then let's do the policy stuff. And some people were like, well, let's do the policy stuff and then the wall next. And so I think that's where it splits. Republicans mm. and Democrats, both the polling shows both want to do it. They differ on how they want to get it done. Right. It's another example of, you know, more extreme voices getting in the way where you could get you know, most people in the country, you could get them to support some kind of additional border security and then a process for yeah. making it easier for legal immigration. You'd have less illegal immigration. Everyone would be happy. Only the extremes standing in the way of it. Scott, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll let you get out of the rain. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. We'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Well, Tesla CEO Elon Musk's plot to purchase Twitter may go through after all. Earlier this week, Musk filed a proposal in court that would see him purchase the social media platform for $54 per share under the same terms that were set all the way back in April. Imagine that. Twitter, which sued Musk for $44 million in July in an attempt to force the deal through, said they will accept Musk's offer at the original price after all that hassle. According to reporting from Bloomberg News, Musk's about face comes after the billionaire's legal team determined the case was not going well. Apparently, Musk claimed that Twitter lied about how many bots are on the platform, were proving tricky in court to bear that out. Joining me now to weigh in is Mike Solana, editor-in-chief at Pirate Wires. Mike, so great to have you. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. 
Yeah, and I recommend everyone uh, go to Private Wires and read what you've written previously and just recently about uh, about Twitter and what Elon Musk is doing. Uh, you, like myself, I think, have been critical of a lot of mainstream media framing of how this will not only like break Twitter but utterly break our democracy and our society if Elon Musk goes through with the changes he's he's going to make or intends to make. Has said he would like to make. Um, can you talk a, a little bit about you know that kind of level of, apo- of apocalyptic fear about like what what is the what is the problem with more people speaking or like less le- less guardrails on political conversation right i mean i think that they should be concerned because everything that they want is now threatened but what they want is not free speech what they not is, what they want is not an open platform for talking about politics they want censorship. They're very clear about this. They talk about it over and over and over again. The phrase free speech is considered a sort of right-wing dog whistle for them at this point. And I think a big central part of all of this is uh, is the Trump stuff, this very clear example of political censorship in private text messages that were subpoenaed by Twitter and went public last week. It's very obvious that not only Elon, but many people behind the scenes are like, this Trump thing was a really huge mistake, uh, a massive overreach, and we need to correct it because we've alienated half of the country. We have become a platform for really the Democratic Party, and we need to be a platform for America. So the journalists who are mad about this, um, they're the same journalists who believe that we need just more censorship across the board. And that's a very sort of mainstream opinion now among media. Um, And Elon's just very sort of ideologically opposed to that. What gets me is that we have so many now concrete examples of the, the kind of guardrails in practice having gone wrong, having gate kept, kept behind a gate, some piece of information or some discussion that was perfectly legitimate, including you know the Hunter Biden laptop story, which now everyone, even the former CEO of Twitter, Jack Dorsey, admits was handled wrongly by the platform, that it was a legitimate story and should not have been suppressed, um, to you know co- various COVID topics where I think actually Facebook has been much worse on that regard than Twitter in terms of what you were allowed to say about the origins of COVID, that stuff. Now, now there's much more agreement even among mainstream people that, okay, it's, it's all right to scrutinize some of these subjects. Uh, so in so many of those cases, right, what, what, the, what the mainstream media wanted to force on the platform, or the, the rules, if they had been allowed to write the rules, they'd been so unfriendly to discussions we ought to have, which to my mind, you would think that might make them more humble about saying that, yeah, it's really important to limit the, the range of permissible speech, yet it's the opposite. They're, they're, they're sensational. They talk about how this will be the end. Ben Collins uh, is really what got me thinking about this. He's an NBC reporter, and he says it's, it's, it, there's enough time, if Musk gets hold of the site, that he could change the outcome of the midterms by changing Twitter's policies, <laughs> which I think, it's, I think that's kind of ridiculous. But what do you think about that? I mean, again, what he's really worried about is that he won't be able to, he and his friends won't be able to change the out, the outcome of the midterm elections by manipulating speech on this platform. <laughs> That's their entire tactic is to say, you know, entire spectrums of thought are evil or dangerous, violent increasingly is what we're seeing. Um, people are being blamed for what other people do based on their speech. He, he uses this to, to, to silence in entire sort of chunks of people. I think it's funny uh, that we keep bringing up the Hunter Biden laptop story. Um, pro-censorship people really hate this. And they're like, why are we still talking about it? It happened one time. And it's like, we're talking about it because it's a, a huge deal that interfered in a major presidential election. And that should have been, like you said, uh, that should have been the moment that everybody realized these powers are too great and the censorship stuff is too dangerous and we shouldn't do it. They don't learn that. Um, I think 
partly I, I wish the sort of free speech people would wake up here and stop pretending that that everyone's on the same team. This is an information war. Uh, and these people who are furious today about Elon understand that it's an information war. Uh, they're trying to control the platform by you know, changing the bounds of acceptable speech culturally and demanding that censorship happens on these platforms. Uh, and they've been winning for years. This is, um, I mean, like you mentioned, huge topics, COVID, uh, the Hunter thing, like this is, this is never going to stop happening until we change the rules in the platform. Um, and like I said earlier at the top of this thing, like these people should be nervous. If Elon actually takes control of the company and i'm still not entirely <laughs> sure that's going to happen i mean this is a wild story um I, I doubt that it's over but if it does happen then yeah they should be nervous this is a huge this is a huge blow to their power i saw some uh, mainstream reporting today uh, about the potential deal where a lot of twitter employees apparently have said maybe every twitter employee that this reporter talked to said yeah if elon musk takes over i'm gonna quit and and right <laughs> i i think probably many of us are thinking Great, good, go. <laughs> See you later. I mean, this is like, I think, so Tom Guerra uh, quoted this story and I I, uh, I kind of responded to it and he mentioned, you know, I, I was saying basically like what we're saying now, it's great. You want to leave because you don't want to work for Elon. Well, I mean, the bigger problem is not that these people are leaving. The bigger problem is that a massive, you know, maybe majority of Twitter employees seem to be dogmatically obsessed with political censorship. Um, and then Gara was like, I think maybe this could be just the problem of the New York Times is only speaking to the craziest people. This is a broader tech press problem is that mm -hmm. all reporters, all of their contacts are, are crazy, like sort of deranged activists. I do think the Times reporters are better at this, but certainly that was an opinion piece by what's his face that it's, it's, it's very different. Um, in general, this is, this is a, it could be some mix. It's like either the employees relatively or generally are, are into the, the censorship stuff. It could be they just don't want to work for someone who's going to make them work. I mean, this is a huge mature tech company. The salaries are really high. The demands for work are, are not very great. I think when the story first broke back in April, like they were in the middle of of a of a mental health day or something. I mean, it's like very kind of <laughs> like an anti-work culture. So it, it could be that that they're upset about. Um, but in general, anyone who wants to leave, I say that's that's great news for not only Twitter, but for America. And I encourage um, all of the other social media companies to never hire these people again. Yeah, your point about the journalists talking to the activists on this issue is, is so true because there so much reporting and commentary from the mainstream on what's going on in the tech world is uh, it, it doesn't uh, it doesn't admit that a little bit is industry competition, right? Is is media, other rival media organizations frustrated with how dominating some social media sites have become, and they think that's bad because no longer can they tell you exactly what you're allowed to discuss. Like it's outside the media, these media properties control, and also their their whole business models are to some degree have been built around succeeding on some of these platforms, and they don't like it, and that comes through in their writing and their reporting, and they found people in the tech community who also feel that way or who think tech is bad broadly is like horrible and addictive and ruining humanity and then that is that is like the the message that it's a it's a one kind of narrative thing about tech that I, and I know you know you're you're more kind of connected to tech people um, is that is that broad like fatalism or pessimism about about media media innovation actually shared by most people working in the industry no, it's. I mean, it's a. It's definitely a minority of of, of activists. I mean, it's pr pretty much everything that comes out of Apple is. It's coming from like these sort of like in-house 
class of activists they have sort of for some reason hired and refused to fire. Um, every sort of major crazy woke story that you read, I think the company runs with it because they are more than happy to seem like they're uh, peacocking virtue while building our phones with literal slave labor over in China. Um, yes. I think that in terms of uh, the, the sort of tech press problem generally, uh, yeah, I mean, like the, the average the average person is in tech because at this point it's a very good job. I'm just going to be honest, like for the, for the big, huge companies. Uh, and then at startups, it tends to be more ideological and, um, and exciting and new. Uh, but no, the, the, the activist class does not speak, does not speak for everybody. Hmm. Never seem to, but they sure do get a lot of attention. Mike Solana, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And we'll have more rising right after this. The family of an LAPD officer killed during on-the-job training in May now suggesting that a murder occurred. Lawyers for the parents of 32-year-old Houston Tipping said he died during an LAPD grappling exercise in which officers simulated a mob attack. Coroners officially ruled the death an accident. But the Tipping family attorney now says one of the other officers involved in the exercise was actually under investigation for sexual assault and that Tipping had taken the incident, had reported it, rather. Uh, the lawyer said, quote, I'm certainly alleging that at least one officer engaged in an abuse of force in order to try to scare or harm Officer Tipping in order to prevent him from investigating a claim of rape. Joining us now to break down the key details of this really disturbing story is Elizabeth Nolan Brown, my colleague at Reason Magazine. Great to see you, Elizabeth. Hey, Robbie. So tell us more about this story. I gather from reading your great piece about it at Reason that this was a, a training exercise. I didn't know they did these kinds of training exercises where there's like a mob attack, like you're overrun by a bunch of protesters or something like that. Well, this is what's confusing because it was officially listed as a bicycle training exercise and, and tipping was supposed to be training officers on how to use their bikes. So it, it's very unclear why it ended up in any sort of a grappling exercise, which is what the LAPD claims happens, or why it ended up with any sort of, you know, hand-to-hand -hand sort of a wrestling when it was just supposed to be a bicycle training exercise. Right. When I first saw your headline or read like the first paragraph, I expected training exercise, accidental, accidental death was going to be firearms related or something. So this was kind of kind of unusual that it would be like that he was he was uh, and he was he was beaten essentially right he suffered bodily yeah. harm from that kind of thing he, right he had three broken ribs a lacerated liver several um subdural hematomas a broken neck um, his spinal cord was injured so there was extensive injuries and his lawyer is saying that you know this could not happen just from the uh, simple grappling exercise that LAPD is claiming it, it happened through. His family is saying that they think he was actually, you know, beaten or, or otherwise sort of injured, not just not just in this exercise that they say. So one of the other officers was being investigated for sexual misconduct and and our, our, our victim, Officer Tipping, what was he was a witness or he was giving testimony about it or he was actually the in the the officer investigating it? What was the nature of their relationship or how that was going? Yeah, this is where things get really crazy. And this is what, what the new information is this week. The lawyer came out and said that 
Um, over in, in 2021, a woman accused four LAPD officers of, of gang rape, essentially. And, and the, the details are, are pretty brutal that, that the lawyer described. And the person who took the incident report on this was Officer Tipping, the one who died. So he was the one who was, who was helping investigate these allegations against four of his colleagues in LAPD. Um, and then one of those officers who was, who was under investigation was present at this training exercise. The uh, lawyer says he can't confirm for certain that this that the officer under investigation was the one who was engaged in, in um, activity with the guy who died, but they they have reports that he was one of the guys involved in in this exercise that ended up killing Tipping. Wow, um, I mean that's uh, something that has happened that's been re you know reported that cops you know that this being described as snitching on each other get you know uh, pressured from other police you know not to not re to report bad behavior by their colleagues and can and have gotten um, you know, harmed because of it uh, so the, obviously that's what everyone is wondering is the case it sounds here like, sounds like something out of like a, a you know a, a LA detective story though right. it doesn't sound like the kind of thing that you think that the LAPD is still doing, but the LAPD never sort of ceases to surprise with the, with the sort of horrible things that actually end up coming out of it. So You would hope and expect that in a situation like this, where there is a police officer investigating another police officer, there would be some kind of, they should not have contact with each other, or they should not be, there should be some protocol for keeping them uh, separate so as to not even contaminate the investigation, right? Right. But, and, and, you know, to be clear, the, the uh, county medical examiner, like you said, he said it was an accidental death. The, the department is sticking with the story that it was an accidental death. That these major injuries that Tipping suffered were somehow um, sustained in the course of trying to save his life. Uh, but as lawyer Rebecca Kavanaugh pointed out on Twitter, you know, county medical examiner, medical examiners in general have a, have a bad history of underestimating police deaths. There was a study last year saying that about 55% of the fatal encounters with police were ruled accidents by the medical examiners in charge of autopsies. So. Wow. So is something going to happen now in terms of an investigation? Is it, This is just the lawyer claiming this, right? And are they filing a lawsuit? What is the state of that? Yeah, Tipping's family has sued for uh, alleging wrongful death. So I guess more more information is going to come out in court as this lawsuit plays out. Hmm. Well, we'll definitely be paying attention to that because it's, it's certainly sad. We don't know, and everyone deserves due process, obviously, and strange things happen, but it certainly looks fishy and definitely worth looking into further by the police or reporters or by the court, etc. because, man, that, that does not just happen. Doesn't look good. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, Liz. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we'll have more Rising right after this. Jackson, Mississippi declared a water crisis in August that lasted more than six weeks, leaving 150,000 people with limited access to the safe drinking and bathing water. New reporting by The Lever has linked how Wall Street is actually at the center of what drove Jackson's water crisis all along. Here to discuss how a credit rating agency's interest rate hikes directly targeted Jackson is Matthew Cunningham Cook. Welcome, Matthew. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me on, Robbie. So tell us more about this. What is the credit rating agency, and how do you figure that they were partly responsible for this? 
Yeah, so Moody's is the largest of the three ratings agents, three main rating agencies, S&P and Fitch uh, being the other two. Uh, and they rate all kinds of debt uh, and basically to determine the credit worthiness of the particular debt or debtor. They have been always much harsher with municipal debt than with corporate debt or with more complex structured finance debt. Uh, and that's been a consistent problem. They've been sued for it many times and Dodd-Frank mandated that they stop it. Uh, but thanks to weak rulemaking at the Obama SEC, they have not stopped it. And so the result is that when you have cities with high poverty rates, that becomes a bigger question for Moody's than the probability of default, the likelihood that a city would actually pay their debts. Because municipal defaults are unlike corporate defaults, unlike structured finance defaults, much more common. Most of the time in the municipal space that you see defaults, they're hospitals and other types of institutions that don't have unlimited taxing power, like Jackson, Mississippi, and countless municipalities across the country. All of this leads to Jackson's debt being rated at the junk level, uh, which means that their interest rates are more than double the rates paid by the highest rated hmm. uh, debt issuers. Hmm. And that means that the city is not able to refinance old bad debt that they're paying high interest rates for. And they're not able to issue new debt to fix their soaring infrastructure crisis. And that was exactly what the mayor of Jackson campaigned on in 2017 was this big new bond issue to address the city's infrastructure problems. Well, that, that sounds like a vicious cycle then, if you're too poor uh, to you know, qualify for better rating and then you get higher interest rates, that obviously makes you poorer or doesn't make you wealthier. Yeah. And so you trap, you, you, know, you would trap the worst off communities in the same kind of, in a, in a spiral actually, make them worse off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and again, it's, it's so uncorrelated with the actual likelihood of default. And so that's what really makes it so unfair. Uh, so for example, 80% of the complex financial products uh, that were rated uh, AAA uh, by Moody's and other ratings agencies in the lead up to the financial crisis saw significant losses uh, to the holders of those securities. Um, Whereas Jackson has never been rated AAA, <laughs> uh, and uh, it's always been rated significantly lower than that. Uh, but they've never seen a default. I think the last time there was a default, it was during World War II, uh, and uh, during that period, municipal defaults were far more common than they are now. Uh, so that's that's really kind of at the core of this issue: is that Moody's has one standard for municipal debt and another standard for corporate or structured finance debt. And it is played a major role in the financial crisis by uh, placing crappy deals, uh, that was literally the language they used, uh, with a AAA uh, mark of approval. Uh, and then those deals collapsed, uh, even though they were far riskier than they actually were. Meanwhile, municipal debt just isn't, isn't that risky at all. Uh, and uh, it's, 
it's really something that I think Americans should be offended about. So what's the solution here? Uh, what needs to happen to get you know, Jackson the, what it needs to correct the abysmal water situation? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, now we're in a much more pressing situation than we were in 2017 or 2018, for sure. And the only quick route is really a large amount of federal investment. I mean, that's one of the things that we talk about in the piece is that uh, the amount of federal funding for water infrastructure products has uh, projects has gone down markedly since the mid 70s. Uh, and it's the only real way to uh, address this crisis. Now, the other thing that I think is worth noting is that the reason why Jackson's water crisis is so significant is because there's been extreme levels of corporate dumping of, you know, things like Greece into the system that just wasn't equipped for that level of, of toxic dumping into the city's water system. And so it's another example that if the EPA had been doing its job, uh, uh, instead of not doing its job, uh, this whole crisis could have been uh, averted to the way that it was. Um, but, but it just goes to underscore uh, how how rotted out that agency has been. Hmm. And you um, alluded to the, you know, the financial crisis, uh, which, right, has been part of the reason for it, a big part, uh, was exactly what you just described, was the, the uh, ratings agencies, you know, dishonestly um, uh, rating these things that are mm-hmm. laughable in hindsight. And uh, you know, it kind of and claiming that well, if they you know if you're not going to come to them, then they can go to some other. They can go to one of the other two agencies. Um, is there any is there any way that uh, that, that like that kind of competition could have benefited um, Jackson, or they they really they're really stuck with um, with with Moody's, or they you know, they you know they couldn't get a more favorable rating from one of the others. I mean, prior to 1975, there were no, you know, Moody's was like an, an advisory agency. It, it had its ratings had no force of law like they do now, where banks and insurance companies are required to hold a certain portion of their assets in very highly rated securities. And th- those ratings are determined by the ratings agencies. Before it was banks had to hold U.S. Treasuries as to, as a backstop. That was what it was like. And insurance companies had to hold U.S. Treasuries or municipal bonds or or or, or uh, certificates of deposit. Uh, and so this was really it's a very interesting history. The the development of this designation from the SEC, where ratings agencies have the force of law, was really about uh, allowing banks and insurance companies to. Uh, prop up the corporate bond market in a totally unprecedented way. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, that to me, I think I think we should go back to not having, giving private credit ratings oligopolies uh, the force of law in what they explicitly say time and time again are opinions protected by the First Amendment. Hmm. That sounds good to me too, actually. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Great. Thanks so much for having me on, Robbie. And we'll have more Rising right after this. 
Operators of Nord Stream, the network of the Baltic Sea pipelines that linked Russia and Germany until they both leaked last week, say authorities are not allowing them to inspect damaged pipelines, according to Reuters. So three pipelines in the Nord Stream network burst last week in an act many, many, including President Biden, have called sabotage. Nord Stream 2 AG, the Switzerland-based operator of the pipeline, said it will examine the condition of the leaking pipelines once a police investigation of the crime scene is completed and cordon is lifted. Meanwhile, one of President Vladimir Putin's top allies said today the sabotage of Nord Stream, which Putin is claiming the West did, appears similar to the U.S. CIA-backed attacks on oil infrastructure in Nicaragua in 1983. Russian Security Council Secretary Nikolai Petrushev told the Interfax News Agency, saying, let me remind you, a similar situation occurred in 1983. Joining us now to weigh in is senior fellow and military expert for defense priori priorities, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis. Wonderful to have you with us, Lieutenant Colonel. Thanks, Robbie. Good to be here. So I'm fascinated to hear what your take on all this is. For my part, I absolutely understand why people would wonder or would speculate about U.S. potential involvement in this, given the way some U.S. officials have framed the the act of sabotage as some kind of opportunity, you know, given our militaristic posturing toward Russia and given the very real history of, of U.S. Uh, officials intervening in various other countries uh, in a sort of black ops senses having to do with all of those things. All of that said, it still kind of seems to me like Occam's razor, the most likely thing is, is in fact the most likely thing, actually does still point to Russia's involvement given everything that's going on. I guess maybe it's possible it was another European effort. I guess also maybe it's possible it was an accident, although it sure doesn't look like it. What, you know, help, us, help us make sense of what's happened. Yeah, I think that there's there's no question that this was not an accident. You, you can't have three simultaneous uh, leaks on these pipelines when they've been there for years. Uh, and it was also recorded there were underwater explosions. So it's it's very certain that someone sabotaged these pipelines. Uh, but you have to look at, uh, you know, forget about the, all the history and everything else for the moment. And just look, who, who benefits and who, who is harmed by this? And, and I think that the, the least likely culprit would be Russia because, look, they already had full control of the pipeline. They could turn the taps on or off at will. And it doesn't make a lot of sense to me that they would want to blow their own pipelines up, which would then take the power out of their hands should they want to turn it back on for political reasons later. Uh, now, there's certainly other people who may benefit from that, and, you know, people can do their own assessments mm. on that. And unfortunately, there is quite a history, as you point out, of things that we have done that, uh, you know, aren't exactly on the up and up. And the last point I'll make is that whoever did this has to be somebody with state's level uh, uh, cal caliber of, of uh, support. Because, I mean, you have to, like, either have submarine capacity or you have to have very deep uh, diving capacity, and, and those are not something just uh, you know some random person can have. Right, right. Um, we can't just say it was well, maybe it was some random environmental group. They they don't, they don't, they don't operate submarines. Right. right? <laughs> Um, tell us about the effect this might have on uh, Germany, I take to be the kind of big loser about what happened, you know, relying on this as an energy source. Um, this makes, you know, the situation more dire for a country that is a, as an ally, as a partner of the United States. 
Well, yeah, I mean, Germany is the biggest uh, potential loser, but but they're far from the only one, as as so many in Europe are, uh, you know, opposed to the or are damaged by the, the cutoff of the Russian gas. I mean, it's already a huge issue uh, that's that's potentially going to plague the entire continent as the temperature continues to drop out here. Uh, but we, we actually are getting news. I, I literally five minutes before we went on air here, I, I saw a report that is actually reporting that there are four total pipelines that make up the Nord Stream 1 and 2 uh, system, and apparently one of those is still functioning and operational. Uh, so it is possible that one of them could come back into operation later. But, uh, you know, Germany is in a, in a real pickle because, you know, they're, they're of course, they're doing everything they can to mitigate the use of gas, to, to conserve, and they're, they're trying to get LNG from the United States, from Qatar and other so locations but look, LNG is substantially more expensive than anything, any kind of pipeline gas. I mean, like orders of magnitude more. And they also have a, a limitation on their port facilities. They could only take so much, even if they got all that they wanted. And it's going to be a tough time without that pipeline. And of course, as you know, on your show here, I've been many times advocating that we need to do everything we can to end this war for the good of the people of NATO, of Germany in particular, and of course, our own national security. We're talking lately, very frustratingly, about the increased risk of an actual nuclear confrontation. Do we have to worry that even the perception, you know, let alone whether we actually did it, whether the U.S. is responsible or not, you know, we're not going to know. It's not going to be proven for a long time, if ever. But is the perception that the U.S. could have been involved, does that uh, raise the risk of, the, of nuclear attack, of, a, of, a, of, sort of Russia doing something or of saying, well, U.S. has effectively declared war, something like that? Well, on its on its own, on the surface of it, I don't I don't think that really changes the dynamics at all, because there are plenty of dynamics that hmm. we do need to be very much worried about in the terms of a nuclear escalation. Because, look, I know everybody is, you know, in the West is, is cheering on the Ukraine side and they've made some extraordinary, just absolutely amazing military gains here in the last five or six weeks. But we have to be cautious and understand that there is a flip side to that. And if we go too far and if Russia feels like it is uh, its national security is at risk or it's an existential threat to it, that's an avowedly given purpose that Putin has said they would use nuclear weapons. And so we have to understand we can't push too far or we could spawn the very thing that the world, the hum all of humanity would, would risk the most of, and that's a nuclear uh, escalation. We simply cannot go down that path. It was reported yesterday that the U.S. is planning to send a new $625 million package of weapons to Ukrainian forces. This includes ammo, uh, howitzers. Um, you probably can fill me in more on what the details of, of the weapons are. Uh, but that this seems like a very significant contribution to Ukraine's ongoing efforts. It actually is. It, uh, of the last three tranches, this, this one has the most uh, actual combat power in it because there are four additional HIMARS rocket launchers. Uh, there are 16 155 uh, millimeter howitzers and 16 105 millimeter howitzers. And then, of course, lots of ammunition, as you pointed out there. Uh, but it's also indicative of what's not in the package. And there are no what's called ATACMs, which is their ultimate long range uh, rocket systems for the HM or the uh, HIMARS systems, which means that they still aren't giving Ukraine the very long range that could reach into Russia because Biden is really trying to thread the needle 
uh, and not have this go escalation that could draw us into it. Because if the U.S. provides weapons that actually strike Russian territory proper, that could cross a Putin red line that could draw us in, whether we want to or not. And we just can't play with that. We, we, we can help Ukraine defend itself. But for our national security interest and to keep this from going nuclear, we can't go too far. Mm. Do you think there's any chance the administration, the U.S. administration, is contemplating an end game here? Because it is true, as you as you mentioned, that Ukraine has now had a string of military victories. They've they've really pushed back Russian forces. When will it be time? Is it time? Will will U.S. officials finally say, "Great, we're you know we're back. We have things back on the terms we want them, and now push for push for a peace deal." Well, I, I've been advocating that from the first week of the war and wish we'd have been doing a lot more of it. But unfortunately, we have to recognize what's going on in, in the militarily here. A lot of people are excited, like I said, about the Ukraine advances here. But look, this comes in the context that Russia has announced a mobilization. They've already had reportedly up to 200,000 already show up at their uh, mobilization sites. And there are a lot of Russian troops in route right now to that to the battlefront there so ukraine is wisely trying to press as hard as they can in both the north and in the south to get as much territory as they can before the fall rains really stop the momentum and before the russian reinforcements arrive uh but the, the fact is reinforcements are coming and at some point these uh, offensives are going to are going to bog down because they've also lost tons of people and equipment and this war is a long way from going on. So the celebration is good today, but we need to understand that darker days are coming. Mm. Well, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, thank you so much for joining us today and putting these issues in perspective. We always appreciate your expertise. Always my pleasure. Thanks, Robbie. And we'll have more Rising right after this. A lengthy police chase and shootout ended in tragedy this week when alleged kidnapping victim, 15-year-old Savannah Graziano, was shot and killed as she ran toward the officers. So here's what we know. Officials in California issued an amber alert for Savannah as a missing person this Monday after her father, Anthony Graziano, allegedly murdered her mother, Savannah's mother, and then fled with the teen in his car. According to the police, Anthony, who was also killed in the shootout, began firing at deputies during a high-speed car chase. Amidst a barrage of gunfire, the vehicle in question stopped, and then Savannah emerged from the passenger side wearing a helmet and tactical gear, allegedly. She was shot and killed while running toward the police. Now, deputies say they failed to identify the five-foot-two figure as Savannah until they began to provide medical assistance to her. Officials have yet to confirm who actually shot the girl. On Wednesday, police shockingly claimed that Savannah participated in the gunfight and had actually shot at the police. However, a preliminary report produced by the San Bernardino County Sheriff's Office finds only one gun was retrieved at the scene, a rifle found inside the car where Anthony was shot and killed. Joining us now to weigh in is New York Public Defender for Legal Aid and political commentator Alayami Alurin. So great to see you this morning, Alayami. Thank you for having me, y'all. So this is something that I know you have complained about uh, when we've had discussions about police incidents. You've pointed out uh, cases where the police have claimed that they shot in self-defense or they were shot at first, so that's how they had to respond. But as you point out, that's often not the case, or it turns out later that um, there, there was no weapon or there was not a weapon in the possession of the person who 
purported to, who it's purported to have fired it, and that seems to be the case here. Exactly. That's the same thing here. You know, it's unfortunate that the police engage in this kind of negligence routinely. And I wish I could say I was shocked, but I'm not. The police admits to shooting and killing over 1,045 people each year. So does it shock me that the police would shoot and kill this girl? No, but it's so unfortunate because when you talk to people about the, the case of police brutality and what's happening with police in this country, the response is always, well, what do we do without police? What happens in these kind of incidents? And it's like, well, look at what happens. This is what the police interference is, right? You have a girl that's been kidnapped by her father. And instead of safely getting this girl back to the family, what they do is they don't just shoot and kill the father. That's one thing, neither here nor there. But they know that little girl was unarmed. You know exactly who you're looking for. You notice this is a 15-year-old girl. You know it. And yet they shoot her to death. And they don't just, it's not even an apology. It's not even remorseful for the actions. The immediate, immediate response is what you see them do in every case of police brutality is vilify the victim. Immediately, it's, oh, she was participating in the shootout. Oh, we didn't know if she was unarmed. We didn't know if she was armed. You did know. Your entire task was to go and rescue this little girl. And instead, her assuming, because she's taught, like everybody else in the society, to believe the police are there to help her. She runs towards the police and they shoot her to death. And their response is vilify the child that was supposedly the victim that they were going after. It's unacceptable, but it's not uncommon. And that's the greater problem. Right, because this was a very dangerous situation. I mean, they, they, the, uh, the, the kidnapper, the, the alleged kidnapper, the father, um, you know, did did shoot at them. It was a high-speed car chase. So it was a, a dangerous situation, a situation that I think probably most people think, yeah, this this is this is what the police are there for. This is what they're supposed to do. And and neutralizing um, the father was probably well within a justified situation. But they're there. They're supposed to. <laughs> their point, the very point, is to rescue that girl. And for them to have, it's it, it is by it, it, like it is de facto negligent. Like, it just is negligent right. because they were supposed to rescue her. Right, and we keep not, we just keep allowing these kinds of things to happen. If we remember, what, maybe a year ago, two years ago with the UPS driver where the jewels were stolen and the police went in a shootout for the jewels, shot up the entire UPS truck and killed the UPS driver who was the victim that they were supposedly supposed to be rescuing. They do this. Why do we need this response? If we say violence doesn't help things, we, uh, we wouldn't allow civilians to go and approach our problems like we wouldn't have allowed someone to go and follow the father and age in a shootout, do all of this, and then kill the victim because they were trying to do this and they got into it in a shootout. We wouldn't. But yet, with the police, we allow this. We have situations that are bad and we allow the police to come in and make it worse. And then we just say, what? What now? Because this is unacceptable and it's not routine and we don't even, it's not even, it's not new. We've seen these kinds of things happen before and there's no real response to prevent it from happening. There's no real condemnation of the police departments. Instead, we see what we always get and the, the beginnings of a massive cover up, excuses, explanations for why they did something that was just quite frankly unacceptable. And there's no larger discussion as to how they end up here. Why is the police response to be so trigger happy? If you're supposed to be trying to rescue this girl, why is the main focus when you see the child emerge from the car to shoot her to death? Why? Why? Right. Because I'm sure many people would say to themselves, okay, if I, I find out that, you know, a, a girl, my neighbor or something, um, her, her mother's been killed, she's missing, or I, I know that she's missing, she's been kidnapped, that generates the Amber Alert, and people are just doing what they think is the right thing to do. <laughs> you know, you're supposed right. to call the police in a situation like this, and to have that, you know, result in... In the massacre in, of a family. Right, right, is just... The whole uh, family's dead. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 the unfortunate part is we need to remember, right? If we look at the police's the police is supposed to stop crime, prevent crime, maybe harm, reduce it, right? In this scenario, a woman is killed by her husband, her child is kidnapped, and what did the police come in and do? Make sure that those two people are dead too. The child is dead. Like 
How did they, they didn't better it, they didn't reduce it, they in fact just made a bad situation worse and there's no apology, there's no explanation, there's no declaration to do better, there's no um, inspection or, or reflection on what they did or what could have been done differently. No, it's just immediately, let's engage in how we blame the victim for, for her own murder. Hmm, yeah. What happens now, you know, walk us through, because you're more of an expert on how these things go. What does an investigation look like at this point? And do you expect, you know, the police department to just kind of you know, make, continue to find excuses like the one they made that, oh, well, she was armed, so we had no choice? They're going to say they're going to say they're conducting an investigation. And then after a while, we're not going to hear about it so much. And the next thing we're going to hear is that the prosecutors declined to to bring charges because, you know, they're going to blame it on the father and say the police in this incident, you know, they didn't really know. They're going to come up with that and they're just going to quietly brush it under the rug, just like they did with the UPS driver and every other case that we ever hear about like this, unfortunately. If they don't discipline police officers who make egregiously wrong calls that result in innocent lives being taken, even in situations that I, th I think the vast majority of people would, would say that, yeah, this situation is one that does call ideally for the police. So if they don't take responsibility when they get it raw, this wrong in situations like this, aren't they just, isn't it the police themselves who are kind of, you know, playing into the idea, well, what, what good are the police? Or making, people, making yes. people more reluctant to call them in situations where they really are necessary. They are making the case. What we constantly say to people is police do not stop or prevent crime. Whenever we talk about, you know, abolishing the criminal system or why we need to defund the police or any of these things, the answer is the police do not do what we think they do. They simply don't, and they do it ineffectively. Police solve maybe less than 2% of crime in America. They certainly don't stop it. They don't prevent it. They respond. They respond to crime. They respond to situations, and they often respond worse. They often exacerbate and worsen situations that are already underway. And the problem with stuff like this is whenever you want to have these conversations and people want to back you know, bad apple it. They're just occasional bad officers. If they were, let's say, let's say that's the case and it's not the entire problem is not with policing. We just have a lot of bad actors that are engaged in constant police brutality to do incidents like this. What does it say if the police departments themselves cover for those people? If they say, no, they're not bad apples, this is okay, this is acceptable, which is what they continue to tell us. So if they say that this is not a problem, this is not, you know, an outlier, this is not a reflection of individual bad cops, but in fact, this behavior is acceptable and we, the victims or the people that are being killed are the ones that are wrong. What does this say about our policing system and what'll continue to happen? Hmm. Well, Alimi, thank you so much for joining us to discuss this. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Robbie. Always a pleasure. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll dig into the latest data on how Hispanic voters are leaning ahead of the midterms. And please be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any of our content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. And I'll see you all back here tomorrow.